Welcome to A Pair of Bookends, the book club you can carry anywhere. We are your hosts and hopefully your new bookish pals. I'm Hannah MacDonald. And I'm Lydia Clare. We are so excited to share with you all that we have a very special bonus book club episode. Today we have the pleasure of speaking to the brilliant author Sophie McIntosh to discuss their latest novel, Cursed Bread, an eerie mystery about desire, memory and madness. Sophie McIntosh is a writer and novelist based in London. Her fiction, non-fiction and poetry have appeared in the New York Times, The Stinging Fly, Granter and The Guardian. In 2016, her short story Grace won the White Review Short Story Prize. In 2018, her debut novel, The Water Cure, was longlisted for the Man Booker Prize. In 2020, her novel Blue Ticket was published to much acclaim, with Deborah Levy describing it as a wonder. On the 2nd of March, Sophie's third novel, Cursed Bread, will be published, and we are so excited to have Sophie with us today. So Sophie, welcome to A Pair of Bookends. Hello, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> oh, thank you're very you. welcome. <laughs> so just to start off with bombarding you with a question, what are you currently reading? So at the moment I'm reading a book which I think is out, it's not out for a few months, maybe in the summer, and it's called My Husband, and it's translated from the French, and it's kind of like a psychological thriller about a woman who's really obsessed with her husband. <laughs> I, I think I saw someone like beating about it, an editor, and I was like, that sounds so interesting. And yeah, just like the idea of someone who's completely obsessed with their husband after 15 years, almost to the point of like, you know, it's kind of like, it's quite a dark obsession, but with someone who, you know, like, where do you go when you're already like married to the person you're really in love with <laughs> I like to obsess them so yeah, I've been kind of getting through that oh my gosh that sounds amazing it does sound fascinating yeah uh, obsessed uh, with someone after 15 years <laughs> it's safe to say 11 years in I'm, that's not something I worry about you know <laughs> <laughs> the author's called Maud Ventura and yeah it's out in I think it's June or July but yeah wow. one to watch out for yeah definitely now we are going to get into your novel but firstly I want to take you back to an article that you wrote for The Guardian in 2019 on rejection in the creative process it was incredible to read that after obviously knowing about how much success you've had since that and I have a quote here if you don't mind me reading it as I just feel like it'll resonate with so many creatives. It definitely resonated with me. Me and Lydia are actors, if we haven't mentioned this on the podcast enough times by now. (laughs) But it definitely resonated with me. So you said, During that time, I craved normal stories of rejection. I wanted to know about the unseen work, not the eight-figure deals and one-hour preempts. I didn't want to know about the breathless J.K. Rowling stuff either. I wanted to know whether it was possible to make some kind of living as an artist without having a breakdown. I wanted to know about the capacity of a person to just keep going, even when every response is a no. And I wanted to know, what is it like for you to reflect on that period of your life now? And I guess, are you proud of everything that you've accomplished so far? Yeah, it's surreal to kind of think about that because I was really so kind of, yeah, at the point when I was, the point I was writing about the point where I was getting a lot of rejection, I was really so kind of ground down, I guess, you know, I just, I'd written a book and it got me an agent, which was great, but it also then was, it was on submission twice, like a year apart. So I kind of totally rewrote the book within that year after, so yeah, I went through a round of like full rejection then I totally rewrote it I spent a year on it and then it got rejected like again <laughs> so after that second round of rejections when you know my agent sort of sat me down and was like um I think this book's not gonna sell I know like you've worked really hard on it but I think you need to like write, write another book and I was like write another book <laughs> but I write another book and then it was kind of like well what that one doesn't sell either like you know and then I think yeah it was a really t- difficult time but it kind of helped me in a weird way reconnect with like what was important I suppose because I was kind of so focused on the actual publishing that I wasn't thinking like am I 
creating a book that I'm enjoying writing am I kind of you know what are the reasons I'm doing it have I got a bit obsessed with the idea of like being a published author Mm -hmm. um but like now that I am a published author (laughs) it is like really surreal to think about that because it just seems so far away like it was just it just seemed really like impossible but I think it has made me better as a writer in in the long run I guess it's that kind of going through all that and still wanting to carry on and still Mm. you know finding a way to you know write the other book that my that my agent told me to write which was in the end the water cure I'm really glad that kind of had that experience in a a weird way (laughs) although it was hard at the time It's, it's so hard as well though to to keep going when you're just constantly hit with rejection it's really hard to like remain creative and remain motivated so yeah I totally I totally get that I'm currently applying for agents I lost my acting agent in the pandemic and I'm currently trying to apply for agents and I'm just getting like rejections or like no responses um so it was like really reassuring to read that article (laughs) I was like I know it was 2019 but I need to bring it back up for you because it meant so much to read that I was like yes like I want to know how people make it as an artist without having a breakdown (laughs) she says (laughs) mid-breakdown honestly like I think it's so important to talk about because yeah like you say there is so much like focus I think in the industry about the people who you know like oh 12 agents wanted them or you know they sold their book at a massive auction and it's like mm-hmm. actually like it's so much more it's so much quieter generally I think yeah my agent we've worked together for like 10 years now and I think she was the only one who offered me representation and turned out like you know she was the absolute best fit so it kind of it does only take one and people kept saying that to me the whole time they were like you know you just need like one yes and I was like oh I would love you I would love any yes right now <laughs> <laughs> but then the the water cure was sold in a was it seven I don't know how you describe it something like seven publishers wanted it or is it like a bidding war sort of thing is that what you call it yeah it was a seven-way auction so auction someone, that's the one yeah one, more, one editor kind of wants it and then they um bid against each other and yeah that, that was a very weird week <laughs> well uh, yeah I can imagine <laughs> but I mean after having you know all that rejection with the the first book that you wrote and then having that like that's just like a total contrast isn't it <laughs> I mean I was just I think when we went on submission I was just like having a panic attack basically and I was like it's gonna it's not gonna happen again I've been through this before and I think there was a couple of days we didn't hear anything maybe even like a week or something and I was like oh no it's happening again <laughs> and I was just like we had this massive event on at work and I just remember like going into the office and kind of yeah sitting at my desk and freaking out really quietly and then I had to go like to a meeting across town and I got off the tube and my agent was like ring me ring me right now <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah and oh then it all kind of got a bit more better from there I love that That's so I honestly it's so fascinating as well because we we have a lot of debut authors on we speak to a lot of writers and it seems very universal the theme of like dealing with rejection and how difficult that can be and also about about success and what success means to different people I think a lot of times we put ourselves under pressure to reach a certain level of success that maybe is perhaps not what we want creatively from something really interesting so I think yeah a lot of success can kind of put you under so much pressure and you know you start kind of second guessing yourself or feeling that you kind of need to write it certain thing and again it's like, like it sounds so cheesy but like just kind of trying to like just hang on to like what I actually like about writing and kind of why I did it in the first place rather than it become this like horrible chore that I'm like you know all the fun is sucked out of it because I'm like it's my favorite thing in the world I don't want to ruin that for myself <laughs> no definitely how, not definitely not <laughs> how did you keep it from 
becoming a chore like how did you do that when you were going through all that rejection I think I kind of just tried as much as I could like they kept trying to be kind to myself and I kind of tried to keep it like I don't know little treats essentially I'm a big like little treat person I think some people (laughs) I'm very motivated by a treat as opposed to kind of motivated by like punishing myself so I was like okay on the weekend you know this is my time to write I've been at the office all week I'm gonna go to a nice little coffee shop I'm gonna get a little breakfast I'm gonna sit here you know like kind of like free framing it as like with my time me and my words I like it's my chance to make it as good as possible like for me not for anyone else and kind of just trying to hold on to that and not like just completely freak myself out basically Mm. well I'm I'm very glad that you didn't freak yourself out and that you kept (laughs) writing because I have to say Curse Bread is just phenomenal phenomenal (laughs) thank you so much (laughs) (laughs) Sophie's like okay calm down but I can't <laughs> so moving on to the book itself, I think I can speak for both Hannah and I that we thoroughly, thoroughly loved every page. Mm. It was such a brilliant and unique little book. Mm-hmm. So without giving too much away, because it's very hard with this <laughs> not to give too much away, but there is kind of an underlying feeling of like mysteriousness and mm. tension throughout the novel. It kind of makes you feel a bit off kilter, like you never quite know where you stand at all. What was it like to plot and plan how much to give away about the mysterious happenings in the village and about how you wanted to reveal things eventually? Being very vague here. I knew like because the story was obviously the first the like the true story was the first thing that kind of grabbed me like when I read about it I was like this is incredible well not incredible I mean like it's it's a, a tragedy but the story itself is just so kind of strange and I thought like you know it would make a good um it would make a good story but I think because you know it is like such a tragic story as well I didn't almost want to like just retell it I was I, I kind of the more I kept kind of returning to it the more I was just kind of interested more in the people behind the event or kind of who you know the complete fictional by the way but like you know the idea of like just I guess the, the concept of a town that would kind of have such an event happen to it the concept of a town where suddenly everyone's hallucinating and um, how sort of strange that felt and what possibilities could be there for like a story with that as the backdrop I think because there's another um, author Barbara Commons who I didn't actually read the story before um, writing Chris Bread I actually kind of read it after um, but she wrote a story um, she wrote a novel based on the poisoning too and like she set it in an English town and again it's like super kind of loosely based on it and um yeah yeah just yeah, that kind of sense of a town completely changing overnight and nothing being real was the thing that kind of really grabbed me and then the story kind of um yeah went from there but I think yeah I think I, I think I, I did think about kind of writing a more traditional retelling but one of the things as well I couldn't actually get to France because I was writing it in lockdown <laughs> and I started it like January 2020 and I had like massive plans to go like research the area and like kind of properly um like learn loads about it and suddenly I was like I'm literally in my spare room the spare room I'm in now and all I can do is like go on Wikipedia basically (laughs) I just like read around it and I think in that in that kind of context as well it became like quite a different book to I guess what it could have been. I am in fear of sounding totally stupid I did obviously you've got the author's note at the end which references the the real story of the poisonings but the the novel like the story itself didn't seem to be any sort of explicit sharing of time and location was this something that you consciously did or have I just totally misread the book (laughs) (laughs) because now I'm worried (laughs) 
did, I did consciously do this. I think I'm, I think, yeah, by book three, that there must be some people who were like so annoyed by my books. <laughs> I'm just like so vague, but I do like, I do it on purpose because I do kind of want that sense of, I don't know, like the feeling that could, not that there could be anyway, because it, it does feel like a specific place and time, but not mm. actually giving like firm details. Yeah, because I think. I say I like having little clues, but I just want it to kind of, I think once the second, you know, like, oh, it's like definitely in France, it's definitely in this time period, you kind of, I don't know, it kind of like places it a bit more to neat in, in kind of reality or like in the everyday. Mm-hmm. And I think if it's yeah. still all a bit like unmoored, it just gives it that kind of dreaminess. Um, and so like, you know, you, you can kind of figure out that it is in France with words like Mademoiselle and Lavoir mm-hmm. and stuff, but I didn't mention the town at all. It's never mentioned by name. And yet the only mentions to like the time period is um, talking about the war and stuff. And maybe like these and what people are wearing but yeah I'm not a historian <laughs> <laughs> hoping that I've got that all correct from like my research but um yeah I'm probably gonna get some annoyed people being like they did not wear they did not wear cotton or <laughs> you know what I mean they did not wear this in 1951 <laughs> I I loved it though I felt like I was like some like investigative journalist like I've got like notes on my phone that's like the way that the cinema's spoken about it sounds <laughs> like it's from like a, a more historical time than it does like to what this I'd imagine the cinema to be like now and then it's like there's certain like outfits you describe them wearing and I'm like that sounds like historical period but then and then I was like there's a war being referenced but it's not telling me which wars being referenced I seem to literally like it could be any war like <laughs> and then I got to the others now and I was like ah okay right <laughs> but I did like that like <laughs> I really love like stuff that kind of just feels not totally grounded in one specific period mm. and um even like well I was watching Banshees within Sharon which is obviously actually at a specific period but for that first like five minutes I was like oh where is this is this now is this another time <laughs> and then I was like oh I see on the calendar it's like 1920 something I think um, but you know that kind of sense was that it could could be anywhere or thinking of like something like uh, that film Dogtown with Nicole Kidman mm-hmm. um is it is it sorry this is maybe not but it, it, is it called Dogtown <laughs> it is called oh Dogtown. I actually don't know we'll go with it is <laughs> Okay. Um, if, we'll it, go with if, it. If, if it is um yeah uh, sorry if it isn't maybe <laughs> my brain is completely dissolved anyway but like yeah like it's not there's no like markers of the town it could be kind of any time period it seems like maybe it's the 40s or something um that kind of thing I just find so interesting because it does give it like the sense of like a timeless story like a myth or a fable and kind of I think like this gives you a little bit of freedom to imagine outside of a really mm. specific time or outside of sort of like specific setting absolutely and I think I was the opposite to Hannah where I was not bothered where we were I was not <laughs> investigating him. I just wanted to know what the heck going on <laughs> I loved it I thought it really absorbed me for that like well, I quite I quite like it because of that anonymity though because you could be mm. anywhere and it could yeah. be it li- and literally it, it makes it so much more relatable because you just say oh it could be down the road could it <laughs> I think as well it, it adds to that mysteriousness doesn't it and mm. it adds to that kind of like like feeling like you haven't got a clue what's going on but I think one of the things with that is my favorite quote of the book I mean this is of the entire book I've underlined it twice of this exciting you've underlined it pencil sorry not you always have a go at me for underlining things in books it's so pencil, which means it's I'm gonna removable. remember this I'm gonna remember this <laughs> removable but you can barely see it 
you can all barely right, see right. it. I'm just saying. It's like, <laughs> uh, it's like invisible ink. That's how lightly my pencil touched the paper. <laughs> but yes, my, anyway, my favourite quote, um, my favourite quote of the entire book is, sometimes reality peels back like the skin of an orange. I mean, this is just fantastic. <laughs> and I think it does, it perfectly sums up kind of Elegy's kind of fantasist-like qualities. Elegy is such an unreliable narrator. I mean, I've never met anyone like but why did you want to create this kind of ambiguity with her character? I think I wanted to reflect like how, you know, how kind of not modern reality she is as well, how she basically is a fantasist, like you said, you know, she's really obsessed with the couple, she can't really see further than her own like desire for them and her desire for like another life. And she's just so kind of caught up in her imagination, barely like notices like what's actually around her. And like, yeah, the reality feels back like the skin of an orange. That's like, I don't even get my own quote right. <laughs> I was thinking that that kind of came because when I was thinking about all this stuff about, you know, Elodie's kind of focus on what's not real and this kind of unreliability and her warping of what's happening at the same time, you know, like we're in the pandemic and I was like, it's really kind of, it was so weird to me how like quickly everything had changed and how, mm-hmm. you know, like, but like, we really like, it was, yeah, like I said, I started writing it in 20, January 2020. So like quite early on in the pandemic, I was like, ah, this is like, you know, I might as well um, focus on this because I literally can't do anything else. And so that idea of like stuff suddenly becoming so different and mm-hmm. you know everything you take for granted just being turned on its head I could kind of definitely see parallels um with what was happening around us and and like what was happening in the village and that, that I, really, I was really like I was really feeling it you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it does have that sort of like intense feel that we had in the pandemic where it was like the whole kind of sort of this chain of events unfolds and you're just like what the fuck is going on <laughs> I think it's, it's one of those things where we're like I don't think everyone if it would I don't think it would have been so claustrophobic for the pandemic but I was like I literally couldn't touch anyone I literally couldn't do anything like <laughs> I was just like sitting in my room writing this like book that was becoming progressively more intense and about her like wanting to touch someone <laughs> yeah. and that definitely comes through I really felt I really felt for Lodi and there was just times and I was like oh like I just want her to like have that like somebody touch the poor woman for goodness sake <laughs> but the obviously the two central relationships in the novel are that of Elodie and her husband and the I was gonna say and the ambassador and his wife uh Violet but I've just thought it's probably Elodie and Violet but the point still stands as there's those two relationships and Elodie's relationship has quite a, a quite a jarring quality you know her husband's very like disconnected and she's sort of like desperate for his attention and then on the other hand obviously you've got the the ambassador and his wife and they have a much more like passionate intense love affair and I just I felt that like power dynamics were played such a huge role in their relationship both of those relationships but what did like those contrasting dynamics represent for you that's a really good question um I think yeah with Elodie it was just this sense of you know her and her husband they have this like really traditional marriage and she's like so unhappy not that you know a traditional ma- marriage can be unhappy but it's just that kind of she really wanted something more and then suddenly seeing it in Violet or at least imagining it in Violet and the ambassador like seeing kind of what she thought she wanted but also there was a dynamic there that she didn't like understand and kind of something that she couldn't like quite access there's kind of that sense of frustration and you know Elodie's kind of seen by Violet as like the weaker one but then as the book goes on I think that kind of flips around a bit and we kind of see Elodie becoming you know not to not to spoil anything but like nastier 
and kind mm. of taking a bit of agency back so interested in kind of I guess like the dynamics of the marriages but also the, the dynamics between the women and kind of how all the dynamics kind of change throughout the book as well like sometimes the ambassador wants to get on the side of the husband and you know him, him and like him and Elodie's um, relationship developed too and again it's like things happening in like, I think in a small town where there's so much gossip and kind of you don't really have that much choice about who you hang out with <laughs> but you're you're from a small town as well aren't you you're from Wales yeah I'm from a town in in South Wales do you feel that that impacted the way you wrote this sort of small town vibe at all um maybe I think yeah I think it's just everyone kind of knows everyone's business I mean I haven't mm. actually lived there for like nine years but I remember um that sense of kind of knowing what was going on all the time and you know like gossip and stuff and obviously you like still get that here but um I think there is that sense in a small town of just everyone knowing everyone so much more like you, you know you can't walk down the street without seeing someone and having a chat which is like lovely but then if things you know when, when things do get go wrong and stuff that can be kind of there's just kind of no escape really I think with Elodie you know like she's so kind of she feels so powerless especially when she sees like Violet and then you know if you're if you're a gossip you do have power like you have knowledge mm. you kind of decide like who you say it to and you can kind of influence people I guess so it's kind of interesting to think about like mm-hmm. yeah using like gossip as kind of currently yeah absolutely how do you how do you say a name Elodie or Elodie 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 that's how I'd say it okay have I been saying it wrong Sophie I think I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I need to like yeah I, I do I wasn't like I wasn't totally sure myself <laughs> <laughs> that's all right then <laughs> open to interpretation with the water cure I had the yeah character shower and everyone's like calling him Lou but then yeah <laughs> but it's like you know at the end of the day it's like it's fine <laughs> <laughs> but Elodie has that sort of like she's very hungry for like knowledge of other people's lives so like you know she's constantly like asking Violet stuff about their relationship and she's really like hungry for those more like intimate details and I think you know that's definitely probably the impact of the sort of relationship that she has where there's no sort of there's no intimacy there's no sort of like sensual sort of moments that you see with the ambassador and Violet so I think yeah her sort of like hunger for that knowledge is definitely off the back of that isn't it? As Hannah was saying about Elodie's need for desire and her kind of sexuality and desire they're key parts of Curse Bread. Elodie's relationship to sex it's almost obsessional I mean I think you could say obsessional <laughs> and there's scenes with her like disinterested husband the they sort of in, there are moments that where it leaves you like burning with shame like mm. her being rejected again and again and again it's just horrific what did you want to convey with the inclusion of of sex and desire with Elodie's character I think yeah this, this is a good question because it's so much at the heart of the book and you know like that kind of that passion and stuff I think you know Elodie's a person who is so you know she is so kind of passionate and she sees like this kind of I guess this like central life as this like thing which will kind of transform her and it becomes seeing the kind of the difference in the relationship with the ambassador Violet um, compared to the relationship with her and also like you know experiencing her own desire for Violet too um, it's just like it becomes so intoxicating it's like she's very used to think you know kind of wanting something more suddenly to have this feeling which completely offends everything and to have this, this kind of this feeling which promises a kind of transformation so mm-hmm. I think yeah to like sort of up like transformation would be the 
everything for Olivia. Like she, she wants to kind of, I guess it's like, you know, it's almost like a, an idea of, of romance. I mean, you know, you, you want something to completely take over you and change your life. You want to kind of be remade by like love or desire. And for her, it's kind of that, just that sense of, I think, being being wanted, being wanted finally because mm-hmm. she has like been wanted so much. I wanted to be wanted so much throughout her entire life. And it's just never quite happened for her or not in the way that she's wanted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, and there's this, like, honestly, for those of you listening and those of you that are going to read the book, you will feel the same when you get to this point. There is a scene between her and her husband where she gets, she starts to get herself undressed and he says, like, come here. And you think, oh, something's yes. gonna happen Finally. and it is honestly it's he just he just does a blouse up he sorts her out he's like no no love it's okay and i'm like what i honestly it makes me feel sick thinking about it because just the amount of rejection mm. in that moment and the amount of kind of like but the tension that you built up in that moment i was like here we go it's yes happening. you're certain <laughs> it's like this is it this is gonna be and it's just honestly it is gut-wrenching it it's really devastating. is devastating <laughs> it's just like this place I mean she's it's just such a vulnerable moment for her she's constantly like throwing herself into these like moments of vulnerability and it's just like you know it, it is like it's just kind of it's so painful it's kind of more painful than I was like it's just fun it's like this like kind of sadomasochistic element in the book and stuff but like it's like the more painful is the actual kind of her emotional vulnerability mm. and rejection mm-hmm. um, it's like way worse than any kind of physical thing could be I just thought it was like a really great sort of exploration of female desire because I feel like mm. so much of female desire is wrapped up in shame you know we're taught to feel ashamed of that it's so like kind of societally normal for a guy to talk about having a wank but a girl you know would mention anything Mm -hmm. like that and it's like sorry like (laughs) sorry what like it's you know arms up in the air about it you know it's 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 like I dare a girl to talk about sex and and pleasure in that way and people are kind of like whoa so yeah I just thought it was really really well explored and definitely like Lydia said like you get that sense of like shame and it is painful and you know there's moments where she's just like she's almost like pleading with him she's like Mm -hmm. she says like please to him a couple of times and you're just like no like please stop saying please to him like <laughs> so the the novel is now I only recently learned this word so forgive me if I get this wrong oh, go on oh this will be a fun one go on <laughs> so the novel is partly epistolary epistolary I can't even know. I was like have I even said it out loud I'm like epistolary epistolary <laughs> I keep wanting to say like epistolary <laughs> it, yeah it's, it's a totally new word to me for any readers that also for any listeners that don't know I was going to say can you give the definition please <laughs> it's when a, a novel is written through letters so uh yeah I'm, I'm totally new to this definition yeah, so I could have watched that but uh, so the novel is partly epistolary and it's you know it's feeding us as the readers sort of insights into Elodie's mind and sort of the inner workings of her mind. And we assume that she she never has and never will sort of receive responses from Violet. And so much of her life is sort of absorbed by these one-sided relationships. What did the letters signify for you? I think they were, you know, they're obviously letters to Violet, but they're pretty much the letters to Elodie herself. It's like her going over the events. It's her kind of figuring out her own thoughts. Um, and there's like a lot of repetition in the book as well. And it's all kind of like her 
kind of working out like what's actually happened you know like this like an intensely traumatic event has just happened her just like trying to figure out like what's actually just gone on and like what was the whole thing with like Violet and the ambassador like just wanting answers from Violet and you know she kind of knows she probably won't get them mm-hmm. but the main thing is like she's almost like talking to herself you know she's kind of going over the evidence and she's just like ruminating and ruminating and just like just trying to piece things together because like you know like something so massive has happened to her that she can't really make sense of it but it's not just the poisoning it's you know all that came before as well it's this kind of this kind of intense obsessive love and what that has kind of done to her and almost like in the cold light of day just being like what was that all that about like what's happened to me like you know just trying to figure it out Mm. I I think I find it find it fascinating the the way that her mind works Elodie's mind works and how when she writes these letters it's very much like you said it's very much kind of a reflection for herself to to think about as opposed to like that this is what's happened in my life it feels so so much more about kind of her ruminating over things and her exploring things and it's it's a great way to sort of uh, yes it's still uh, I think quite unreliable because it's it's Elodie talking but I think it's much more of a intimate look into her mind yeah for sure that idea of like we're really getting her kind of unfiltered thoughts in a way because obviously mm-hmm. she narrates the story to us but I think um like you said she's a super unreliable narrator not to say the letters are reliable but like you know they're kind of I guess more of a almost a private a private mm-hmm. outlet um mm-hmm. like between two people whereas with the kind of events of town and the poisoning she's kind of you know telling us like an audience she's not like telling us like you tell some gossip to someone at the bakery yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> the letter was like really you know it's personal it's her being like look this is the real me this is what I really thought all along mm-hmm. absolutely I think as well what I found quite fascinating about the book was the relationships and the dynamics between what I like to call the golden trio um, <laughs> which is Violet, Elodie and the ambassador and how they kind of work together and slot together in, in different ways I thought a di- dynamic was it was very complex but it was fascinating what did you have in mind when creating the characters and their relationships to each other what did you want to kind of demonstrate with those I think I wanted to think about um, I guess like how well the different ways like kind of a couple or uh, different ways like a kind of love triangle can manifest almost mm-hmm. you know like the mm-hmm. dynamic between them because you know there's there's times when you know, none of them really have the whole picture no one really has the whole picture of like what's going on with any of them like Elodie doesn't know what's going on with the ambassador Violet really Violet doesn't necessarily know everything that's going on with like Elodie and the ambassador yeah like there's kind of this, this sense of kind of not knowing and not really being able to know properly ever the person that you love or you want and even if you're like married to them um, and I guess they yeah they're, they're sort of so kind of toxic, toxic really <laughs> even in the, like the close friendship between the women and mm. yeah and that's kind of like the relationship I guess that like no one kind of really figures out because it just it's so kind of it is so kind of close and obsessive and mm. yeah probably something the ambassador wouldn't think about but yeah I think just that idea of like unknowability and how kind of how much can be left out even in a really close relationship between three people yeah and their um the friendship between Elodie and Violet is is very intense and you do have that whole kind of will they won't they throughout was was that intentional or were you just kind of trying to show like that 
female friendship can be have that sort of intensity to it no it's definitely intentional I think even yeah from the start I was like I knew like Elodie's kind of fascination with it wouldn't just be like platonic but and she would probably be like you know like kind of wouldn't like fully understand it as well and I definitely think you know there's definitely intensity to those relationships that there was yeah it was it was kind of for, I just want like for for, for Elodie so much it's kind of it's so everything she's feeling is so kind of new and such another level to like what she's kind of experienced before um for both of them yeah that kind of like like terrifying intensity mm. mm-hmm. and I think what I I mean not to call myself a bit obsessional but I am slightly um but I I find that <laughs> I mean, Hannah, I promise I'm not coming after you. But I, I do find <laughs> that female friendships do have an extra layer of intensity. Mm-hmm. And I do think that there's an intimacy in a female friendship that that I wouldn't have with my friends who are male. And I loved that the way that that was kind of almost made you it made it feel a little bit duplicitous because at some points I was like, well, this does feel like a relationship that mm-hmm. I would have. You know, yes, it's a bit intense. Yes, it's tactile. But then there was also this second layer of kind of, but this is too much. This is too far, you know? Mm. And I love that kind of breaking of those boundaries, you know, without confessing that I'm a bit dodge. <laughs> yeah, I think you're spot on with the idea of like that intensity and that kind of, yeah, like the thing is, I, I, I don't think like intimacy is toxic in a way. I think you can have like super healthy, intense relationships and stuff. Mm. But just that idea of like, I guess, like night, like what's kind of the purpose between it? Like night, it's, it's not like, it was never kind of this sweet, nice, close friendship from the start that was healthy mm. it was always like Violet wanting something oh, no sorry <laughs> wrong one it was always Elodie like <laughs> wanting something and also kind of you know well actually like you know Violet wanting something in her own way as well you know like just it wasn't kind of in a friendship that came from somewhere like super pure or anything it came from mm. like envy and mm. um, you know kind of loneliness I guess and mm. yeah, I... <laughs> yeah and I mean your your style in itself is I would say like pretty distinctive and I read a really great review in the Guardian I think it was is it Joe ha- Joe Ham Hamia yes did a great review of Curse Bread and uh, she was also talking about like your style and how like I think she described it as like you can definitely reference something as Macintoshian now I think that's what she said <laughs> which I love I was like okay is this a new phrase we're learning <laughs> but and I mean obviously like your style seems quite like interested in like gender politics which I it's like that's like catnip you know if it's in a book for me I'm like I'm there but where do you sort of draw in inspiration from um I was like my life no <laughs> I'm not having these super intense relationships I think I think I'm well I mean sometimes but I, I think I'm I think I am kind of interested in not necessarily like in kind of gender politics as a concept and stuff but I think it's like people politics and kind of mm. how in intimacy I'm really interested and how kind of intimacy and desire collide and like you know like just wanting to really know someone wanting to be close to them and wanting to kind of know yourself and you know it sounds like a, a bit cheesy but like the kind of entire entire humanity to kind of like get this bigger understanding and just I think I'm just I'm just totally fascinated by people and I'm, I love like I love meeting people I love kind of figuring out you know I love like kind of the dynamics between people and how intimacy can be this incredible like force for good and it can also be this like terrifying like wounding thing it's like site of vulnerability but also a site of like so much like growth and like happiness too so that is kind of something I kind of return to a lot just mm-hmm. thinking about how these dynamics can manifest in like different situations love that mm-hmm. I also listened earlier to 
to the is it the Sunday Salon podcast, which um, I don't think they've actually released an episode since like March last year. And I'm gutted because I immediately enjoyed this podcast after listening to this episode. And I'm like, oh, like I'm going to listen to the back catalogue, but there's going to be no new ones. So I'm going to be very sad when I get to the uh, end of re- listening to those. But you did a great episode um, on that. And you were talking about how you you would say you're quite a visual writer um now that made me curious because I'm like well what kind of imagery was coming to mind when you were writing Curse Bread? I think a lot of like very kind of pastoral you call it very like wholesome autumnal when I think of it in my head I'm like you know I see the town and also um, I don't know if you've seen the American cover for Curse Bread it's out in April but like there's a really beautiful the table. Like, still life yes. on the front with like a bottle and a loaf those kind of like really still um intimate sort of still lives or something I was kind of thinking about a lot that kind of muted palette it's funny because like, in my head it's like it's kind of hard almost to like how to put it in words but I did have like a really strong sort of, sort of sense of what the town looked like mm-hmm. and you know almost like a kind of um sepia to is it sepia or sepia <laughs> <laughs> we're not doing well tonight are we with our pronunciations <laughs> at all <laughs> you know what I get all the time and like my boyfriend is always like if you know too many words you forget how to pronounce I'm like thanks babe <laughs> <laughs> you can write them <laughs> in my head it was like you know like when you write like a map or something in primary school and you like stain it with tea and it's just like mm-hmm. you make something old you make something kind of more unreal mm-hmm. then it seems like more kind of beautiful than it is um that was the kind of like yeah that's the kind of rambling answer <laughs> no I love that I did I did think from time to time like I was curious if because obviously prior to reading it I didn't know that it was sort of referencing something that had happened historically and you know at, at times I was thinking is this a historical or is this some kind of like dystopian weird like dystopian town (laughs) and I think you know I could definitely visualize like what this town looked like for me and I was like yeah this is either one of it's gonna go one of two ways it's either this very strange dystopian town or it's actually from a historical historical town so yeah I uh, definitely got a sense of that and I am also very obsessed now our listeners aren't gonna be able to see this but I'm so obsessed with this cover it's Mm -hmm. just like the best thing ever And I love that there's like, there's sort of like a new wave of like book covers of like women lay in sort of precarious like positions. (laughs) And I just, I love it. Did you did you have any sort of say on what you wanted for the covers or is that something that like there's a design team that sort of takes care of that and you sort of you don't give them the ideas like do they just come back to you with it how does it work yeah it's kind of all the design team I don't really right. have um, input but what I have done I should come if I did it with Chris Bread but I definitely did it with the water cure and blue ticket I make like a Pinterest board of like kind of images that kind of inspire I definitely made it with the Chris Bread so I think I must have sent it and then I kind of give that the art department and then they can kind of work from that and it's just like helpful I think for them for like visual language but I remember mm-hmm. like ever for the water cure when I saw that and I was like absolutely nailed it like that was exactly like what I was thinking it was really similar to like stuff on the board it was, it was just like it was such a moment of like and like I really my other covers do it wasn't quite as kind of that stack you know there's been some tweaks and stuff and, you know you gotta go, go back and forth I'm a bit of a weirdo when it comes to like font <laughs> like I really, really like love, love a specific font I don't get that much input but then I'm like the design team know better than me like my job is to kind of like put the words on the page and 
their job is to you know pick something that people are going to want to pick up it's a job you do very well honestly. yes it is <laughs> but also they've done a cracking job of this book cover because I am very much drawn in by book covers so if I'd have seen this in a shop with no prior knowledge like I would have straight up gone for it <laughs> Hannah you're just any woman lying down in a weird position <laughs> That's it. Taking it home. (laughs) (laughs) So finally, Sophie, before we let you go, because it has been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today, I'm sure that this novel is going to be absolutely just fantastically well received. Mm -hmm. Can we ask if there's anything new in the pipeline coming up? I know it's very soon, (laughs) but I will. Do I have a bit of a weirdo and I like to be working on something else when something's coming out. And also like it's a long process to have a book out. So I am working on Mm -hmm. a fourth novel at the moment um and like the bride's a bride it's about like desire and <laughs> yes uh, love it <laughs> oh, it's, a bit, it's a bit more like it's not historical it's kind of a bit more I wouldn't call it speculative but maybe more just a bit like weird again surprise love <laughs> it love weird. we love weird <laughs> good to see I'm like branching out yeah it's about like at the heart it's about a relationship between two people like a really kind of intense sort of secret relationship and yeah the impact that sort of has on their lives secrets desire intimacy sold sold there's only a woman lying on the cover if there is yes I love that well, it's we, we absolutely have to come back to us once this only one is released that's yes, please it do. final no I'm not giving it a choice before we before we actually let you go though we need recommendations from you so is there anything that you've been enjoying recently so there's a book that's just come out I think last week um, called Owlish which has just come out from Fitzgeraldo editions and it's about a man who falls in love with a life-size doll set in Hong Kong and it's just really incredible book like it's very strange it's also like a kind of incredible commentary on kind of yeah like current events too mm-hmm. and there, there is a book I just read which I really enjoyed too called The End of Nightwork by Aidan Voice, and it's got the most amazing cover and the cover was kind of what grabbed me and it's like it's just a really great book about a man with a kind of aging disorder so he kind um. of ages in job and about like what that means um, in the sort of society he lives in which you know is our society this kind of like a growing um, movement kind of around age and like the privilege and um, stuff like that so it's, it's, a really, it's a really interesting book as well um yeah those are kind of my two main recommendations amazing I am especially intrigued by Owlish oh, really uh, <laughs> that sounds like a bit of me <laughs> but yeah thank you so much Sophie um it's been wonderful chatting to you and uh, like Lydia said you have to come back to speak to us about your fourth novel we're very excited no for that <laughs> no choice no choice <laughs> thank you so much for having me it's, like, it's so nice to chat to you on publication eve <laughs> yes and publication super stressful <laughs> yeah pub- publication tomorrow isn't it yeah, yeah tomorrow so at the time of recording it is tomorrow which is very exciting have you got any celebrations this being a bit extra I'm actually having like two launches so I've got an event like a panel tomorrow evening at the LRB um where I'll be chatting to my friend Rebecca and then I've got like a party on Friday as well um like, mm-hmm. I was like why not have a Friday sort of why not have a Friday launch party so more people can come and we could be very hungover on Saturday and my love parents it. the whole time which is really nice <laughs> you can right. have a very hungover weekend I love it <laughs> <laughs> but yeah enjoy enjoy publication week it's very exciting and listeners i will be linking i will be putting a link in the show notes to to buy cursed bread which i insist that you go buy and read immediately it is amazing and uh sophie is there anywhere our listeners can follow you uh, on social I'm, media not in person i'm on 
yeah, for fully memory, more than so. I know on Twitter, I'm like fair, fair aisle, like kind of the jump up with an extra fair. Um, yeah, my accent sort of makes up a slightly tricky one. Um, or on Instagram, I'm Soph Mackintosh, which, you know, self-explanatory. <laughs> Gorgeous. I will link both of those. But yeah, thank you so, so much. And listeners, please, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe as it helps to boost us in the charts. Go give Sophie a follow, go buy her book. And if you want to follow us, you can do so at Pair of Bookends Pod on Instagram and at a Pair of Bookends on Twitter and TikTok. Thanks so much for the millionth time, Sophie. And goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>